0: informing you beyond the mainstream a rational voice in the world of conspiracy this is the jim duke perspective
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the broadcast. This is the Jim Duke Perspective. I'm Jim Duke and my co-host is Bob Natupsky. And uh, we're coming to you live on this Sunday. 4 p.m. Eastern Standard, 1 p.m. Pacific. And if you're in between, you can figure out the times. (laughs) Well, thank you for listening. And uh, we have a show for you tonight. We have author Gary Wayne, author of... The, conspiracy, the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and uh, we'll be bringing them on in just a second. Just want to remind you, my website is jimdukeperspective.com. That's where you can find all my information and contact information, or you can find it at jimduke.us if that's easier for you, same place. Our sponsor is American Survival Wholesale for the Finest and Long-Term Food Supplies and Storable Foods and Survival Equipment. Check them out at AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com. Well, you can find us on iTunes. Actually, iTunes has just changed their name; they're Apple Podcasts now, and uh, they—I I guess they're going by that name. So, we'll—we'll we'll see how that works out. And uh, you can find us on Stitcher as well as on the Spreaker.com network. And you can listen to us right from the website. Well, author Gary Wayne is with us. He's the author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and I know he's put in well probably into three decades of research, and he's a vast well of information. And we bring him back again. Gary Wayne, thank you for joining
2: us. Well, excited to be back and really looking forward to a stimulating conversation this afternoon.
1: I'm sure it will be. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, last time we we gave an overview of uh, Genesis 6 uh, conspiracy as far as up to the flood and a little after the flood, just as your your book summarize, or goes through, and um, I thought we'd pull some things apart in the next session here, and maybe we'll look at the history of Nimrod. That's always an exciting topic, and how it affects us today and in end times, and I'm sure you have some... Some information on that. <laughs> yeah, I have
2: a little bit of information on Nimrod. I certainly use him as uh, as one of those individuals that I think people need to dig a lot deeper into if they want, want to understand what's going to take place in the, in the end time because I do believe Antichrist is sort of uh, related to Nimrod in that at least Nimrod from a minimal perspective is sort of an archetype of uh, the end-time Antichrist, where he has a universal religion, he has universal sway over the Sethites, and uh, he uh, essentially struts and walks similar to an Antichrist-type figure that I think people need to dig a little bit deeper into him, let alone some of the ramifications and and ripplings that will come down through history because of Nimrod. Now, I know
1: some equate him with... I mean, you hear all sorts of theories out there, some equate them with Gilgamesh. But I know the Epic of Gilgamesh is before the Flood, as as you had told us. And then I believe there was another formation of Gilgamesh. It came back that they may have linked to him. But what is your objective about that?
2: Well, typically, I mean, you can look at Gilgamesh as... Uh, either one or two individuals, and it's hard to know which one the epic of Gilgamesh is referring to. So in Enoch Book of Giants on, I think it's 4Q30 to about 4Q35 in the Book of Giants, uh, out of the Dead Sea Scrolls that lists Gilgamesh as one of those giants that is war- forewarned of the flood beforehand. Yeah, and then this Gilgamesh shows up in the Epic of Gilgamesh. I don't find that a coincidence, but typically the Epic of Gil- Gilgamesh talks about him being created after the flood, as opposed to being on the Ark of uh, a neptician or Zudra in the uh, flood story that Gilgamesh will recount. So, but this Gilgamesh figure is, uh, he is not king right after the flood because that's, Uh, He actually shows up, uh, you know, uh, a couple hundred years later as son of uh, Lugabanda and um, more perhaps around, let's say, um, oh, I don't know, about 2600 to 2700 BCE, according to secular uh, dating, which obviously from a biblical perspective, you put that a little bit later. So um, and uh, this, you know, Gilgamesh isn't. Generally, the people that I think are the person you should relate Nimrod to in the epic of Gilgamesh, and I would more relate that back to a person called Enmurakar, who was third generation um, after the flood as a king, coming after Atmatishan, Meskiyash, Kashir, and then comes Enmurakar. And uh, then you have Lugabanda, uh, and then there's Dumzi, eel in some... Um, um, Accountings of it, and then there's Gilgamesh after that. So, I'm not sure whether or not I've got some people confused on all of that right now. But there's a lot of meshing that goes on with Nimrod and Gilgamesh, and I'm not convinced that that's uh, that's who you should be meshing uh, Gilgamesh with.
1: Yeah, I've heard two accounts. I mean, two well, not two accounts, but two people, two different sets of groups. That's what I should say. Some say that he is equated to Gilgamesh, and others that no, in fact, are. Two different distinct um, uh, characters, or so. Yeah.
2: yeah, and but if you if you look deeper at that, Enmerkar, he's third generation, just as Nimrod is, and you know he's a, a ruler of Uruk as well, and you know his name, if you look at it, goes back as Sumerian for hunter, uh, and he's King Enmeru uh, as he, as as he's called, and you know, that name, if you pull pull the vowels out, you've got um, N-M-R-U, which is, you know, kind of Nimrod, which also meant an Akkadian hunter. And so it's very, very similar to sort of the Nimrod name. And I wonder whether or not there's a conflation on, on going on on the transliteration of names over languages. But what we do know about this n Murakar is, and it's spelled two different ways, depending on whether or not you're pulling it out of ancient Sumerian where I put the U in before the K because some some of the Akkadian and Babylonian translations, it's just Enmerkar. So in case people are are sort of fact-checking me on that. But where he, where he shows up is in um, a couple of uh, sort of classic writings that come up, out of, of uh, Sumerian mythology and history where he builds a ziggurat on the island of Eridu uh, in direct opposition to Anlil, who a lot of people using the uh, Sumerian god pantheon would equate um, the god of the Bible to. And so he creates this ziggurat to build it into heaven just as what Nimrod does. And this is also the same a person who, an event that has uh, has God strike down this project and then disperse the people uh, and confuse the languages. And so we find, you know, this account in Enmerkar and the uh, Lord of Arata. And then um, there's... Uh, couple other ones as well but just to give sort of an example of where you might want to pull that out of you again if people wanted to look at another one it might be Ninurta's pride and punishment so if you read those two for sure you could put put together a story that is strikingly similar to nimrod bob
1: you're there right you with us yeah i'm here you have any questions or uh, i mean is gary right <laughs> is he correct Boy, i'll tell you
3: I can't even uh, pronounce uh, one-tenth of those names,
1: let alone remember the variations and pronounce them. <laughs> <laughs> I got Illuminati, uh, uh, Nephilim, you know, those are the things that come into my mind. But right. when it comes to – I was reading his book, I'm like, okay, how do I remember what to ask him on this? Now nah, I'll just let him say it. <laughs> see,
3: yeah, it, See, it's interesting that ISIS recently uh, took over and destroyed uh, – an ancient uh, set of statues and writings called Nimrud on the top of a mountain. Right. I forget which country it is.
1: And uh, I wonder if that was... Uh, it was in Syria, I think, wasn't it?
3: No, I, I, I'm not sure. Iraq. Iraq. Syria or
2: Iraq. Could yeah, Iraq. I can't remember, but... It's yeah. Speaking.
3: Yeah. And, you know, it seems like all this stuff is tying in together. You know, it's going to be like the days of Noah on both sides of the flood. So uh, I'm just wondering if a Nimrod type character is going to show up, um,
2: you know, and start hunting down men. <laughs> well, I, I I think that that's why we need to learn about who Nimrod was because I think Antichrist will be very similar to Nimrod. You know, just as Nimrod was one of the most hubris and arrogant individuals of, of history, you know, saying unheard of things against the God of the universe, Antichrist is going to do that and more. And so I think we can look at what Nimrod did to impose this universal religion and then force people to either worship him and his religion and follow his ways or slaughter them from the face of the earth uh, as sort of an exact parallel as what we should expect from uh, an end-time Antichrist. I think the the parallels are just too great to ignore. Yeah, and
1: I guess that's why it's um, important, you know, Christians will say, why do you guys talk about Nephilim and Nimrod and all that, and, uh, you know, they don't understand how it relates, and that's what I want to try to do tonight. And, uh, but it's, it, it's interesting, you know, it's interesting to go through the history, but also the importance of it, and a lot of people miss that. Now, when we talk about Nimrod, we don't have to go before the flood, right? Because there's nothing that leads up to Nimrod, besides the genealogy that comes through uh,
2: Ham and Cush, right? Right. Yeah, and his name is inserted into the Bible, uh, and there's a few lines on him, and it's rather stingy. It's rather odd that it's in there, and it's rather odd that it's located around uh, the story of Babel. And, you know, if you just left it at that, you may walk away and not dig any deeper and not have any connections to Babel. But in my research, and what I'll write about in the book, is is that Nimrod was absolutely connected to, by, to Babel, and that's why his name is, you know, inserted right around the Babel story and understanding the complete babel story is is just so key.
1: Yeah, is it don't don't some, well, I, peop, don't some people say that uh, he he doesn't really connect with babel it's really after that when it was babylon that it connects with they, they confuse some things there. Or? Yeah, you
2: you don't really connect him into babel until afterwards where he goes into chaldea which becomes babylon and then and then another uh, branch becomes a cad right so but you, you get that from a cad because those are that's one of the cities and uh, just as babylon is is connected uh as being where he's from as well so that's really your only connection so unless you connect babylon and chaldea and a back to the cities that he's erecting and again it's it's kind of unclear as to the timetable as when those cities get erected but one presume it's after uh babel Um, you you would just sort of pass over it, but it's my contention that these things aren't put in coincidentally in the Bible and everything is there for a reason, you just need to dig a little deeper on it. Well
3: Gary, I notice you do a lot of research rather than repeating what someone else says. Now I've heard a couple different uh, stories about Nimrod, one that his father was a fallen angel and um, the other was that he was the one who actually married his mother in the start of the sun god worship, and yeah. he was also the predecessor of what would be considered a Jägermeister
2: or the stags in the uh, Celtic areas. Yep. Uh,
3: can yep. you clarify some of that and tell us the truth?
2: Well, there, there, I think some of that is legitimate, and some of, some of it might be a little bit overblown because nobody, what they don't really talk about is how that sort of comes about, and and how that develops into Babel and how that develops into to Nimrod. But first of all, we know that from a biblical perspective that Nimrod was at least part human because his father is Cush, son of Ham. And typically in the Bible you don't have Nephilim that are listed um as coming from anybody from the Table of Nations. Now, you have some peoples like the Canaanites who are going to intermarry with some of the post-Diluvian giants, and probably, uh, again, with the descendants of Esau, with the Horites and Seir, and probably uh, some of the, the J- sons of Japheth as they intermarry with uh uh, some of the giants of, let's say, into the northwest Turkey area who may even take on some of the names like Gog and Magog as, as part of the giant sort of nomocatcher catcher that comes down to them. But biblically speaking, we know he's the son of Cush. So unless his mother is Nephilim or there's some sort of DNA transfer that's not explained in in, in the Bible, then it's odd to have him called uh, as you go back into etymology, he's called Mighty One, and that goes back to Gibbereen. And so Gibbereen is also associated with Nephilim out of Genesis 6. So you have Nephilim who became Gibbereen and Men of Renown, which is actually Seth. But the Mighty Ones that uh, is, is the connection here between Nimrod and the Nephilim out of Genesis 6 uh, is, is the Gibbereen connection. And although gibbereen can mean giant, doesn't necessarily mean giant. In fact, gibbereen is used uh, something like 158 times in the Old Testament. And uh, not all of them refer to a giant. I mean, sometimes it's just an upright man. And for sort of clearer examples on that, I mean, you can go into... Um, Psalms, um, and, and I'm just going to try and remember the verse in Psalms, but it's going to be 103, I think 20. And in the King James, King James Bible where it says excel in strength, that goes back to Gibberim. So we have angels being described as gibberine as well. So, okay, so they're still connected with angels, but that doesn't necessarily say that he wasn't an ethylene. So, but if you get into um, David's mighty men, as example, uh, in 2 Samuel um, and in First Chronicles, I mean, mighty men is used many times, and there's only a few people in David's mighty men that might even be considered descendants of, of Nephilim, you know, as, as Uriah the Hittite, for example, that would uh, be an example, but the rest are out of the tribes of Israel, so you have to be very careful as to how you apply mighty, mighty man, just as in Ruth two, one, where it talks about a mighty man driving, um, or a kinsman of a mighty man and wealth as a, as I remember that there's talking about, uh, Boaz, um, again, Boaz wasn't, uh, a, a, a giant. He was just referred to as, as a mighty person or a powerful individual or a noble of that, of that period. So, But yet it says in in Genesis 10 that somehow Nimrod began to be a gibberim. And that is very, very unclear as to what that means. Um, So did he just sort of begin to act like the old giants of old? Or was there something changing in his DNA that made him change in that direction? Again, we're not told that.
1: Yeah, that's what my question would be, yeah.
2: Yeah. So I threw a lot of information out there so I'm going to stop for a second and, and see whether or not there's any questions there
3: well sometimes with uh, people uh, figure with receiving a demon they become a mighty man so it sounds like some of these Nephilim might be uh, somewhere uh, between receiving a demon and our modern day comic book superheroes
2: yeah yeah um, it's certainly possible um, so, I mean, and I guess in, in that understanding, what you're saying, Bob, is is that somehow maybe he becomes possessed, right? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's certainly one possibility. Or as other people would might put forward, is that um, he he somehow changed his DNA with uh, the knowledge that he receives at uh, at Babel. But again, we're not we're not told how that happens.
1: Right and uh that, that's the that's what I had heard from some scholars about you know and that's what my question was uh whether he some some say he must have been a nephilim and then but the scriptures seem to say he became so we have a tendency to wonder like bob said is he possessed or did he do something with his dna to become a mighty man and uh, of that of that yeah. thing and also you mentioned so mighty he- Go ahead. No, you mentioned mighty men, and um, some scholars will differentiate and say that a mighty hunter or mighty warrior is Nephilim, um, and mighty men is more like Nafalim or something? It's a different word, so it distinguishes?
2: Yeah, except that when you take the translations back to Hebrew, it doesn't change the word it came from. Oh, okay. Right, so when I was talking about those specific examples and all of the examples, it goes back to gibberine. So when, they, when that word is translated, whether it's mighty one or because it can mean also, I mean, in the definition of gibberine, it could mean strong, valiant ones, mighties, man, just man simply, a valiant man, a strong man, an upright man, a champion. And, and there's so many different variations, but that word is always gibberim that it comes out of Hebrew from. Mm-hmm. And so although, so it has a number of, of slightly variant meanings, and it also can mean giant, right? So you have to understand the context that it's in.
1: Right. And right. if you take
2: the word, if you take, and, and the narrative that it's in to define, you know, whether or not that gibberim word that comes out of Hebrew, like in, in the uh, men of uh, mighty men of... Giants there, right, even though it comes from Gibram, and it's used, like, I don't know how many times between those two accounts, probably over 20 times just in those two different accounts out of Samuel and Chronicles. But here's the word began. It goes back to the uh, Hebrew word uh, kolal, and what that means is is to wound or dissolve or figuratively to to profane, uh, perhaps to break a word or a bond and one wonders whether or not a we have a rebellion that's going on which is all again as you take the name nimrod's etymology back as as rebellious as well um in rebellion Um, one wonders whether or not he broke his bond with god and somehow with that um, this change begins but we don't know what that change is and nobody has any definitive evidence as to did he actually become a Nephilim, or did he just begin to be like another tyrant, right? Because the Nephilim were tyrant rulers. Just as you get into Ezekiel and the accounts of, say, 32, 12, 27, 29, and 30, these could be Nephilim descendants, or they could just be powerful rulers, right? Or tyrants. And so, again, we have to be very, very careful as to how we extrapolate that. So I leave it a a bit as an open end. I'm, I'm open to the idea, but he's certainly not purebred Nephilim, right? He's, there's something more going on because we know he's the son of Cush. Uh, one thing's that- And if you, or I mean, son of, yeah, son of Cush. And also when you create the Nephilim, you have the father as a fallen angel to be purebred, right? Through a human female. And we know the few, we know Nimrod has a human father.
1: Right. And what I was going to say is that the, uh- He's mentioned specifically, so we know he has importance. He's in the table. Mm-hmm. He, um, mm-hmm. There's significant—even though there's not much written, there's definitely something that stands out above others to mention him. And like you just connected, he's definitely can be traced through the lineage, so we know something about him.
2: Yes, and he's there for us to understand why. And so uh, in research outside the Bible— you get some more information about who Nimrod was, and so if you get into the secret societies, let's say Freemasonry, where I'll pull this f- part out of, was he was the first Grand Master of Freemasonry in the post-diluvian epoch. He was the one who writes the first constitution for Masonry after the flood. And how this comes about is that, and, and they don't look at him as a giant. He, they say he was a big man, he was strong like a giant, but he, he says the Orientalists and other mythology, mythologies that the Freemasons say is just an exaggeration as to what Nimrod was. So, again, not to use them to, to rest on that he wasn't giant, but their accounts about him are very, very interesting, that he partners with a fellow called Hermes, and Hermes finds the two pillars of Lamech, and in some of the legends of the Freemasonry, uh it's called the Pillars of Enoch. And on these two pillars that are built before the flood, it's designed to put some knowledge of the ancient knowledge and the religions on on these two pillars and also to show where those That bank of knowledge that's supposedly, again, according to their legends, in 36,525 books in nine volts, stacked on top of each other and buried under the pyramid, they say that Hermes finds these two pillars after the flood. And these are the two pillars that you see in Freemasonry today, and they're called uh, Boaz and Joachim or Joachim, depending on how you want to pronounce that, but That's just the lower level allegory. At the upper level, they they recognize those as the two pillars of of Enoch and Lamech. And you have to sort of go through those two pillars on your route to uh, enlightenment because it's all about this knowledge, right? And so he finds this knowledge and he brings it back to Nimrod and he partners with Nimrod at Babel. And as they develop this knowledge, and understand that Babel is built within the first hundred years of... uh, uh, say 75 to 120 years after the flood. So this is very recent to uh, uh, to the flood and the memories are very, very strong and it's just barely third generation. And so they developed these, this knowledge and then Nimrod, according to these legends, that's recorded by Albert Mackey in the history of Freemasonry and he's one of the great patriarchs who put a lot of the legends down that go into the Polychronicon, which is the significant works that... Uh, they have about their history. And so anyways, he Nimrod teaches and him and Hermes, they teach a thousand masons in the craft. And the fifth science of the sacred sciences that they've discovered in the mystical religion that they're restarting, that was the downfall of the Antediluvian <laughs> Epoch. Um, the fifth science called geometry is also called masonry within the craft. And so they decide that they're going to do the, as the first representation and manifestation of the starting of this knowledge and technology after the flood, they're going to build Babel they're going to build this mountain to the, to the, uh, into the skies. And what they do by doing this is, is start to form their rebellion against God. And so we hear about this this knowledge starting up in rather odd language around Babel in, in Genesis, where God says, and paraphrasing that, acting as one people and in one language, there's nothing that's going to be prevented them from accomplishing. And I believe that's that's the uh, the structure of Babel and Babel City as a, a, a masonry. Uh, Project designed just as the antediluvian projects were to dishonor God to dismiss God not honor him for anything and start worshiping and honoring. The pantheon of gods that ruined uh, the antediluvian epoch and so this Babel now becomes this very. Representative both religion forced religion. And persecution of people and rebellion against God, that is that archetypical story for the end time and understanding the end time, just as the Babylon religion of Revelations and of the Old Testament that it talks about uh, is taken back to this allegory and story at Babel and Nimrod.
3: Well, a couple people have alluded to the Tower of Babel being a combination between a religious experience, ayahuasca, or even an ancient version of CERN, which would actually empower people and have them you know, contact the angelic or the demonic spirits and contain all the ancient uh, knowledge of masonry.
2: Absolutely. And if you take and understand that the Akkadian Empire comes out of uh, the descendants of Nimrod, Nimrod. Uh, Babel in Akkadian uh, is split into two words, Bab and El, with El being God or fallen angel, as we would know it, or an angel, and Bab as being a gateway. So now you have this connection just with how Nimrod's descendants would have understood Babel as a gateway to the gods. Now, were they trying to get the leader of the Watchers and the angels that were locked into the abyss out of... The abyss at the time of Babel as creating some sort of portal into that. And all of a sudden now, just between what you said, uh, between CERN and what they're trying to do with, um, you know, quantum mechanics and quantum computers, are they trying to get CERN, um, use CERN to create that same type of portal to get those awful beings that come out of the abyss in Revelation 7 you know, the, and the scorpions that come with them um, and and bring about the end time. I think I think there's an absolute connection there. And if you want, I can make a couple of connections uh, as to this word CERN and taking that back to a god and connecting that back to Azazel, if you like. Yeah, go ahead.
1: Link it all in. Okay.
2: So there's two gods that you can sort of discern coming out of different... Uh, Languages and countries that actually have a name of Cern in it, Um, and uh, so one is Cernunos, that is a druidic uh, god, and that's C E R N U N N O S. And uh, there's another one that goes back to the Etruscan culture, that you know that um, are the pre-Roman, so to speak, and that name is actually cern c-e-r-n now who are these two gods well these two gods are basically um a god of the forest um and they're horn gods right and uh they're they're lords of the forest and of the underworld as well and it's also a fertility god And you get some depictions of of these gods, and certainly we have a few that come down through history of uh, Unos, and they are pretty much identical sort of depictions, as you would depict Baphomet, who is also equated with Azazel, right? And you might also know these gods as Herne the Hunter or the Green Man. These are all the same gods. That that they're talking about and Cerno C-E-R-N-O in Gaulish actually means horn for the horn god, just as Cernos means the horned one. And what's really interesting about that is if you take that back, it also Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: A laundry? Oh, a book club! Computer solitaire,
3: huh?
0: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com No purchase necessary. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: So equates the the, the Roman god Cern and these other gods are equated with the Greek god that's called Pan. Now I'll give you some descriptions of Pan, who was half human, half goat. Uh, a devil god who plays the flute. That's why you get that imagery in Peter Pan. He flies at night with his private parts erect so that he, he can seduce and have sex with young nymphs because he's a fertility god, right? And he's the fertility god of the woodlands and he's a companion of nymphs. He has these pointed ears. He's also known in some writings as it comes down through literature as Robin Goodfellow or Puck, as in Shakespeare. He is born of Zeus and or Hermes and or Dionysus, depending on which legend that you're going to talk about. And he's also equated in other legends as a flying upier or Oberon or a vampire or overlord of the Danann, which is sort of the king of the fairies. And so all of a sudden, we have these, these gods that... Are come down through history with fame and continue to show up, that connect right back to Azaziel, who is also, we might understand him in Deuteronomy as, uh, as this uh, representation of a goat as it goes to uh, the sacrifice of two goats on the Day of Atonement. And the second one is sacrificed, we don't. we're not told who, to. But a goat that is sacrificed and sent out into the abyss for for some some sins, and I think that's for the sins of the antediluvian epoch. So I think this whole imagery about uh, Cern uh, goes right back to Azazel, right through the, the the sort of allegories of the gods and how we understand who Azazel is, and Azazel is the leader of the Watchers, who lead according to the Book of Enoch. Uh, the sons of God, or the watchers to Mount Hermon to create the original Nephilim.
1: Exactly. And, and interesting enough that the the horned god that you're relating, um, you know, I, I had a video on CERN and witchcraft, and I got a lot of rebuttal from Hindus and from people that think CERN is a scientific project, <laughs> even though the imagery is certainly uh, paganism, uh, occultism, and everything else, and I pointed that out. But the horned god is actually uh, secretly what the witches, which in witchcraft, what their god is, so it relates right back to directly to witchcraft.
2: Tied it is like, witchcraft, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. and and uh, you know, and and witchcraft, uh, you know, comes right out of uh, you know, so that druidic sort of culture, the Wiccans, right. And again, it as you go through and and, and note some of the leaders of Freemasonry, most a lot of those were Wiccan witches right? I mean, this whole belief system is completely interconnected.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how, you know, CERN, it goes right back to CERN, right right back to DNA, right back to D-wave manipulation, right back to horn gods, right back to the uh, ancient ritual sites. Uh, I I guess it's CERN is supposedly on the historical ritual site of Apollyon, a god of destruction, Mm -hmm. and, you know, it goes right back to this end-time connection with Nephilim connections and with Nimrod uh, tower building, now Bob's often mentioned about the, the Tower of Babel was um, design, was was not constructed on a mountain like one would think, up into the up you know into the air up you know to reach heaven, yeah. it was in a, a valley. so it wasn't like they were trying to reach heaven very much like it
2: was a portal. Was a gate? Yeah. Well, and you have to think that if they had, you know, the, the skill level to build pyramid-type structures, and this project was thought to be twice the size of the Great Pyramid in Egypt, even though it wasn't finished. But if they had the knowledge and skill level to do that, they they weren't these dumb goat herders, right? They were intelligent beings, and they and they knew that you you couldn't build a brick-and-mortar building that would get up to the moon, for example. I mean, you'd I mean, have to be crazy to think that. So they were building this for another purpose. I mean, the allegories, they might have used the allegories for that, but I also believe that they felt somehow they were going to be able to get access to God because, again, there's so much of, of written record about uh, Nimrod climbing this ziggurat and threatening God that if he was ever going to get out of line and try and bring on the flood again, he would climb to the top of the Nimrod and slay God. And so somehow, some way, they felt that this pyramid or this tower, and by the way, pyramid, ziggurat, tower all had the same meaning in the ancient epoch. And it was a represent representation of a holy mountain, uh, a.k.a. possibly Mount Hermon or the seventh mountains around the world, which is sort of a standard in, in mythology of, of the mountains of the gods, just as Olympus would be a mountain over the gods. And so they must have believed somehow that they could get access to the to the gods, or to the fallen angels, or to heaven, and that suggests some sort of inter- interdimensional access.
1: And uh, Nimrod did con- well, I- did consider himself to be a god, right? I mean, did they look to him as a? I know some people look at him like a hero. As far as outside of biblical text, we we know him to be a rebel. But the world, mm-hmm. some of the world, uh,
2: alludes him to being a godlike figure, right? He commanded that everybody worship him at the as the head of the uh, of the religion, and again they would be put to death if, if they didn't. And so again, you have this sort of abomination um parallel story that's going on you know 100 years after the flood with Nimrod and so you wonder if if that the confusion of the languages is just to prevent the end time until God's ordained time so yes he was he was understood to be a god
1: and how does he relate to um you know a lot of people say that Nimrod in I guess Josephus wrote or actually the two babylons with Hislop, or whatever his name is uh wrote about Samaramis as his wife. Is there proof of that?
2: Um not not certainly not biblically. Um right. and again that comes down through a lot of uh, legends and so it's one one of many stories. Um it could be, it may not be. Um so it's, it's really hard, hard to know whether or not that's true or not. What we do know, though, is, is that this religion that gets set up, it's going to have uh, an Inanna or Ishtar, depending on which language translation, as being sort of the female goddess that's going to be set up. Now, is that who Nimrod actually marries, as what Enmur Kar does uh, in terms of setting up the Inanna um, uh, religion, or is that just another human female that is there to represent uh, the 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 female goddess. I mean, again, we don't know that. Um, there's nothing there. There's a lot of speculation about that, and I don't dismiss it as being untrue. I just can't prove it myself. It's just one of those things that are out there. It's interesting, and it's certainly possible.
1: And then they relate it to the precursor to Osiris and Isis.
2: Well, yeah, because it's the same pantheon, right? And whether or not it's it's Isis. Isis is the same as Inanna, or Gaia or Ashtar, or Ashtaroth. It's it's the same mother goddess, uh, the same mother earth, just as Osiris and Zeus are the same. Uh, Osiris and uh, Baal, and Osiris and all those other male uh, gods that has a female goddess beside it. It's the same pantheon, they just have a different name.
1: So it is referring to the
2: same. It is referring to the same, because it's the same pantheon that comes up that they had in the antediluvian epoch. It just gets changed with the transliteration of names. And in my book, I'll actually show how Osiris and and how that religion moves over from Babel after the dispersion to be set up in Egypt and how you get that transliteration of names to go across which becomes the Egyptian religion and you have two pillars of this religion after Babel. You have the Egyptian one started by Hermes that travels with Mizram and Ham to Egypt and then you have Nimrod setting up in Chaldea the other leg of the empire from there all the post-Diluvian Religions and pantheons are set up around the Mediterranean and over into India and probably to the rest of the world and that's why they have pretty much an identical pantheon just with different vernacular names
1: Bob
3: yeah uh, a couple things um, you mentioned about the forces and then Daniel uh, I think it's love yeah 1138 talking to the, about the Antichrist it says but in his estate he shall honor the God of forces and the God whom his father knew not shall he honor with gold and silver, precious stones and pleasant things now I know uh, in uh, a lot of witchcraft circles uh, the force is the witchcraft and this seems to tie back to Nimrod also and to the Antichrist
2: Mm-hmm.
3: If I'm correct
2: Yes it does, absolutely it does And so you're going to have all of those Forces of, of witchcraft And the occult And all of the powers The fallen angels and the uh, demons
0: With Lucky Landslots, You can get lucky just about anywhere more than once actually do i have to say yes you do in the car before my kids pta meeting really yes excuse me what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky i never win and tell well there you have it you could get lucky anywhere playing
1: at luckyland slots.com play for free right now are you feeling lucky no purchase necessary Void
0: you prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details
2: they're going to bring to bear in the end time and then you have also something that's rather odd that happens with Antichrist is is that, you know, he's the one who comes up out of the abyss, right? And so both when the two witnesses are killed and a little bit later on, you know, he's described as the one who once was, now is not, um, but comes up out of the abyss and will rule for a short period of time. And so you wonder whether or not, again, you have this possession that's going on. And is that possession going to be by the spirit of Nimrod, who maybe gets locked away in, in the abyss when he dies? Or is this the same spirit that may have um, possessed Nimrod to um, try and become an Antichrist figure? Because what we're told about the spirit of Antichrist, it's, it has always been there and it's always in play and it's always trying to exert its, itself on the world. So you have all these interesting things that go on that again all sort of connect back to exactly what happened with Nimrod at Babel.
1: That was actually one of my questions about whether some think that Nimrod's going to be actually resurrected in the end times, or whether that spirit of him is, is the one that was, that is, that is to come, or or whether um, it's you know, whether it's him or a spirit or just basically the same spirit like you said that indwells him so yeah i've heard that the same analogies uh, but dna's probably going uh, i i also hear a story uh, the the theme that dna his dna will be recovered or that they have mm-hmm. recovered his dna to yeah. recreate a hybrid or an avatar for the spirit to dwell in when he you know when they have that perfected i don't know if you've heard all of
2: that of, yeah, I've heard that all of that is possible and we don't know because the language is interesting as it as it applies in the Bible to this this coming antichrist figure. But what I do know is is however this comes about is is the bloodlines of the Nephilim are heavily connected to what the uh, secret societies and and a lot of the occult groups are trying to present to us as antichrist in the end time. So um, for one, th- one thing that we likely get is somehow either the bloodline or a uh, a cloning of is going to connect back to probably Nimrod and probably to Nephilim somehow, let alone a whole bunch of other bloodlines.
1: So it could be a, one of any scenarios.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're just going to have to watch that. I mean, it's going to be quite clear as to who he is once he starts to negotiate the the World Peace Agreement, but... Now, Gary, in regards to the Nephilim,
3: were there female Nephilim who could give birth? Well, you know, were certainly, maybe
2: with a human male? Yeah, I think there was. Uh, and uh, certainly in the reproduction afterwards, you get uh, Nephilim females. So that if you get, um, who is it, Eliphaz uh, that marries into the Horites, that's Timna. And that's one example quite a ways down the road where you have at least a descendant of Nephilim or a hybrid Nephilim as a female. If you go into Greek mythology, um, you have uh, the Titanides, which were female Titans. And Titans are created in the same format as Nephilim are. You know, and a classic example to bring that to bear is Poseidon going to Clymene and creating ten demigod titan kings to rule over his 10 nation empire of atlantis right so and you go around the world you get the same story that's told over and over and over and over and they're called titanides and there's um uh, several of them um uh, many of them mentioned in in greek mythology and then it's also kept alive and you know we we're talking about um you know puck and robert goodfellow and uh, the green man and peter pan and, And connecting that together earlier with Azaziel, you go into Shakespeare in Midsummer's Night Dream, which is all about fairies. And it has Oberon, King Oberon, which connects back to the Tootha de Don and some of the allegories I was mentioning a little bit earlier. And he's known as the King of the Fairies. And uh, he is married to Titania. Right. And Puck in Midsummer's Night Dream is this is is a representation of Robert Goodfellow and, and this god. But you have this female queen named Titania, which is, again, that direct sort of allegory and genealogy linkage that they like to do in their occultic literature. So were there female um, Nephilim in the first generation? Possibly. But there were certainly there shortly thereafter or in the next creations of some of the additional uh, Nephilim that were created, because I think there was more Nephilim created than just the ones on Mount Hermon, which was 200. Because if you get into other mythologies and accountings of of that period, they talk about multiple times where the gods go to go to females. And as one example, Poseidon just didn't marry Clymene; Poseidon had sex with many other human females.
1: Yeah, Bob. I think um, the Nephilim are males and the Nephilur are females. No, I'm just kidding. Um, um, Yeah, yeah, these these things. Wow. Um, Yeah. Well, it
3: seems like uh, yeah, a lot of things are getting too weird these days. Like uh, female impersonators. You put some horns on them. You got Baphomet. whether it's Hollywood or in the music industry, all these ancient names, these practices are being revived. You know, it was in Burns and Allen. It was in uh, any of the Star Trek, Star Wars. And it's even on the modern day TV series where they're actually encouraging women to have some type of uh, mutation uh, or, or mate with someone for a mutated child to produce like a nephilim race, as we would call it, or superheroes, as they call it today. Yeah. And yeah. this can't be accident. Well, so maybe you have a point. Okay, maybe you have a point with Nimrod alternating the DNA. Can you elaborate?
2: You have a... what's that? You're asking whether or not uh, there's a possibility of creating uh, a nephilim through uh, Nimrod's DNA. Well, I think.
3: You had a point with Nimrod maybe manipulating his own DNA because that's yep. a trend of Hollywood yep. right? trying to go to the Nephilim again, if, yep. if you could expound on that. I don't think I asked that right, but I think you know what I mean.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, uh, yeah, I think that, I mean, let's just define what um, the other side sort of believes is if you go and you use and you've used the word superheroes a couple times, and I'm a real fan of that, um, is that hero – which they're, the mighty ones were known as, and they're also known as heroes in Greek mythology and in, in Sumerian and Anunnaki mythology, um, as these Nephilim people. Hero, as it's understood in the Antediluvian epoch, is uh, the offspring of uh, the gods and a human female and becomes a demigod on earth uh, and they have the right to rule and they're given the right to rule as these demigods and as the offspring of the gods so that's that's significant so this this dna that uh is possibly being manipulated or spread around somehow what uh is uh something that is key to i think that sort of greater nephilim concept as well that happened in in the anti world because in that world you have all of these Beings that are being created in in other mythologies and you know we might hear of them as chimera or pegasus or uh, so many different centaurs so many different beings being created that there is more than just giants being created that's a violation against um, creation and so this is probably more than just physical copulation right there's probably a DNA manipulation and I believe that the world became so corrupt, and that's kind of what the word means, corrupt, when you take it back, that the whole world was spoiled, like the whole earth was spoiled. And that means plants and animals. And if they had that technology back then and were moving in that direction with technology, that it's going to be like the days of Noah, as you mentioned earlier, Bob, both before and the 350 years after the flood that uh, Noah lived. Um, And Nimrod certainly lived in, in that period, and somehow he begins to be a Nephilim, and somehow there was this DNA manipulation, that that would be, again, a very logical sort of idea as to creating Nephilim in other sort of ways for the end time. So is that kind of what you, where you're headed with that question, or did I totally misunderstand it? That was fine. Perfect.
1: Okay. Anything else, Bob?
2: I
3: got a. Actually, I got a ton of questions. I meant related to Uh, that,
1: but okay.
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Now I heard you um, before mention on someone else's podcast. I forget whose that. You equate all your prophetic studies uh, to what Christ said in the Gospels, Mm. and uh, I'm racking my brains trying to think of him talking about the Nephilim. Well, how, how did this get you on your research into this? I mean, I think this is okay. important, but can you yeah. tell us how you got into it?
2: Yeah, so maybe let me clarify that maybe just a little bit. So, I mean, there's two, couple of principles I like to do when I study the Bible. Um, one is that um, I like to put all the verses together so I get a complete understanding as to perhaps nuances to what what, what is being said in the Bible. and a specific subject and particularly with prophecy and the other thing that i try and do is everything that i'm going to study as i try to take back to what jesus said first and utilize that so when we talk about the end time and prophecy jesus says quite clearly in matthew and mark uh, and in luke that uh, his second coming and the signs of the end time are going to be like the days of noah and so that's how I link sort of that aspect in that perhaps we should look a little deeper into the days of Noah if we want to understand the end times and the second coming of Jesus. So did I did I give you what you're looking for there, or is there something else you need to know there? No, that no, uh, that's what I wanted to know yeah okay. and and again, you've you've got other New Testament things that go back to the days of Noah, whether it's in Peter or it's in Jude. and then in Revelations, you've got the abyss and you've got demons and you've got the angels. Um, so there's a number of things that'll lead you in that direction, but certainly I take note of anything that Jesus would have to say on the subject and and try and pay very close attention to that and align everything up around what Jesus might say.
1: So what you're saying is, instead of saying, "Well, Jesus didn't mention Nephilim, but that doesn't make Nephilim irrelevant," he mentions, as in the days of Noah, which brings us back to the Genesis account. Yes. And I have a question exactly. about the Genesis account since we're there now. <laughs> I segwayed that. See Not how nice I did that. Um, the The name, the name Bab- Babel, um, that we get in the Scripture, it says it was called. Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, so it gives us a connotation that ba- Babel or how we have the word Babel, which means confusion of, mm-hmm. of language um but yet in their language they used the the word uh, they 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 equated to gate uh gate of God so it, did that word get translated to that they used it for gate or was it, was it Always first confusion, and then they said, "Hey, let's make a mockery of God and call it gate." Or did was it called gate before? I don't. I don't.
2: Well, as it comes down through the akkadians and the, and the, um, you know the people of Mesopotamia, it comes down as gate. Um, as it comes down through Hebrew, it's confusion of languages, right? So um, it's a very good question that you're asking there. Um, certainly, from a biblical perspective. If you take that back to Hebrew, uh, and it's going to say, you know, uh, confusion of languages, or the confusing of languages. So that's a very good question. But I can only take because it comes out of the Mesopotamian languages. Either they have changed the name of it later, or that was how they understood it right from the beginning. And perhaps as the the as babel was the place where the language were changed amongst the peoples to disperse them that that became the official meaning for the Hebrews as they should understand Babel.
1: So now we have from that let's let's take it from there onward spiritually almost like Um, so you have Babel because it was the Tower of Babel that's where God confused their language and then we got from that Babylon but we also have Babylonia right yeah Mm what's Babylonia where's that come in play that was before Babylon?
2: well i think babylon uh comes from um or babylonia comes from babel
1: right and that was like a almost an intermittent city in between or so did i get that right i,
2: I think I, I think there's two cities um one is is the location and we're not quite sure of the location of the original babel city uh, and then you have another name being named babylon down the road and they're in two different locations, um, and again, not to take uh, the, the Sumerian account, but they put that at, at the ancient city of Eridu, and on almost on an island. Again, doesn't mean that that's the location, but you know, coming from the Enmerkar story, that's where that's located. So I think it, you shouldn't confuse ancient Babel uh, with the Babylon. You know, that was the, the center city of uh, of the Babylonian Empire or the beginning of uh, the ba- Babylonian Empire and lineage, you know, extending out of Chaldea. I, I don't think you should confuse those. So am I being clear on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's take it from Babylon. So yep. ba- Babel came first and then—or they dubbed it Babel— and from that we got Babylon. When did they start constructing a city that they called Babylon, and who did that? Like, where does the tribes start to kind of split off and reform the city?
2: Right. So um, that, you know, I, I can't really uh, answer uh, as to when they would have started the 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 next city of Babylon. I haven't, re- haven't researched that enough to... Uh, understand that. Okay. So do you, have, do you have any ideas on that?
1: I don't actually, but um, you know, we do know that it's significant because it starts to mention that the city that is going to represent the uh, spiritual context of yeah. religion. I, I believe I don't know if this is right, but this is what I I get out of it is when Nimrod uh, was in the Valley of Shinar, and and whether they called it. Babel then or whatever, uh, mm-hmm. it was represented as the the essential hub of all commerce, all religion, and all spiritual worship, right? And that right. kind of formed into Babylon, which gives us that same context that this is going to be the center of the world. In other words, yep. Nimrod intended for a one-world government that linked yep. Religion, commerce, social, everything. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned that in your book.
2: Yeah, kind of sounds like the Vatican. (laughs) Well, I think think, uh, as you get into understanding what Babylon is going to be uh, in the end-time scenario, um, it is both— it is many things, like it is, uh, you know, the world's sort of capital uh, of the earth. It is where the religion is going to be located, and it's where um, all business is going to funnel through. and And that's why you have the different sort of allegories that you have coming down through the Old Testament that are going to help you understand Babylon. So you have Babel or Babylon, and, you know, again, you know, from the sort of Hebrew perspective, I mean, Babylon it comes out of Babel, it just as Babylonian does, as, as an extension of, of, of Babel. So uh, I think we can take that with that religion and that type of idea going down through uh, Babylon. It's the same type of religion in, in the ancient society. And we're going to have the same polytheist universal religion in the end time. And it's going to be very much this ancient religion. Um, and you also have... Uh, let's say uh, the city of, uh, of tear being used uh, in uh, association with uh, uh, allegories of the Old Testament for uh, the end time uh, Babylon. And that's sort of you're getting into the understanding of the commerce aspect, which. Babel clearly is talked about in Revelations as being the city of trade. And then you also have another city that is used as an allegory in Old Testament prophecy, and that is Nineveh, because it's going to be the city of blood. And we're told of two major holocausts that are coming out of the end time, the first one in the time of the religion of Babylon, and then another one in the reign of Antichrist. And so I think those allegories are very, very, very important. And if you get into some other connections with uh, sort of outside the Bible, you have um, um, traditions coming out of Mesopot- Mesopotamia. And um, I'm trying to think of the historian, and he eludes me uh, at this time, but uh, I'll probably think of it in a second. But he relates Babylon or Babel City as being uh, an allegory and a representation of a very ancient city. Uh, and uh so that city goes actually back to Atlantis as the city of trade uh, and the city that is center for, for world government and center for, for a, a world religion. And so there's so many different sort of um, layers uh, to this Babel allegory that we get in, in, in the end time that it's like peeling an onion back. And the, and the deeper you go, I think the better you have an understanding of it.
1: Yeah, and the more you talk about, like, Atlantis and bring that back in, now my mind starts wheeling all these—conjuring <laughs> all these theories now. Because, you know, you equated Nim- uh, Babylon with Atlantis, and it's incidental that uh, Francis Bacon wrote about the new Atlantis, and that seems to be the strive for theosophists and uh, to bring back the ascended masters or the ancestors of Atlantis or of Babylon in order to bring the great white brotherhood and you link that too in your yeah. book so
2: wow yeah and they, and they want to harmonize religion with uh science right in in the end time and the other thing is that you know Atlantis as i had mentioned earlier had 10 empires or 10 portions to its empire and it was trying to take over the whole world. It was beaten by the Athenians in uh, Greek history, as Plato accounts for it, uh, in Crataeus and Timaeus, but...
0: uh, With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle
2: up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky.
0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Um, when we look at that allegory, sort of moving forward as we get into modern times, because um, it was considered the helm of world government in in the golden age, uh, they're trying to reproduce this this new utopian age that. They develop a secret society in the 60s called the Club of Rome, and it answers to the Rosicrucians. And uh, the Rosicrucians probably at the upper end of the Rosicrucians, which would be all purebloods. And the goal of the Club of Rome is to implement world government with the world separated into 10 blocks of nations or groups of nations or spheres of influences or influence. Um, that would uh, send one representative to this overreigning um, government, and of course, these would be, you know, the descendants of, of of the giants, who would be these representatives to reign over with this universal religion. And so, if you go back to Daniel and you go back to Revelation, it's talking about this ten king empire of the end time, and I think that is exactly what the secret societies. And the mystical religions and uh, the descendants of the Nephilim are trying to assemble. And that ancient historian that uh, I couldn't remember the name of, it just hit me, as Barossus. And he was around at the time of, one, you know, an Antichrist-type figure at the time of, of Alexander. And in the Ptolemy period, he was uh, commissioned, as what Josephus was by the Romans, to document the Babylonian history, because he had access to, to to the libraries, the ancient libraries, so that would not get lost to history.
1: Bob, don't rabble, rabbit trail into secret societies. We can go on forever. I, we're going to have Gary back on to talk no. about that, but okay. this opened up a whole bunch of doors, and I just now want to dive into that. Right. So let's restrain, let's restrain. Okay. <laughs> you got a question for him?
3: Yeah, Mystery Babylon question.
1: Yeah, I want to go there the a little bit.
3: Mis- misquoted verses is Revelation 17.4. Uh, everybody says, Mystery Babylon, the mother of all harlots. But it's actually, Mystery, comma Babylon the Great, the yes. mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Yes. So, um, in order to understand that, I think we have to go back to your research about Nimrod, ancient Babylon, because it's more than a religion there's also abominations that come with it and yes. uh, what are the abominations
2: well the you know the abominations are you know things that are extraordinarily offensive to uh, to god right and the greatest offenses that we see were the violations against creation right and the violations of worshiping the pantheon of gods and doing sacrifices to these gods, and to uh, particularly sacrificing people and drinking the blood of people. And I think all of these most horrible of, of abominations are going to be coming um, about in both aspects of the end time religion that we're going to see because we're going to see as i mentioned earlier this uh, babylon religion and then the religion of uh, the antichrist that you were referring to you know out of daniel a little earlier on bob and so i think when we think about the worst things that happened uh before the flood those are the things that are going to be happen and that could include you know a copulation of of beings, uh, of angelic beings with human females, uh, and but you you name how corrupt the world was. That's what's going to be part of the abominations, and I think we're going to see it unfold as they introduce this this seven year. Well, it ends up being about seven years, but this age of utopia that they're going to promise.
1: Was it likely Nimrod was doing these heinous things like drinking blood or having blood sacrifice, occultism, child sacrifices? Yeah. So,
2: Yeah, so he implements all of this according to particularly uh, the Masonic records, and blood drinking would be the most uh, awful, well, one of the more awful things that he um, reintroduced because that would be, and that blood would be coming at the sacrifice at these idols. But yes, he's the one who reintroduces blood drinking, which was what Nephilim did before the flood.
1: And interesting enough, that comes into now into uh, predictive programming. I call it. It's it, we call it TV programs. Uh, but it uh, it 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 shows you know the Vampire Diaries and all this blood drinking, and now you have the uh, spirit cooking with uh, um, uh, um, what's her name, Marina Abramovic, who incidentally lives her her cottage. Her her uh, her uh, cottage is about twenty miles from me. <laughs>
2: interesting yeah and you know having this mythology or mythos of vampires that continues to uh, become more popular you know it's been with us for a very long period of time this is no coincidence this is again that predictive programming that you're talking about and preparation and you know we look at modern vampire tales and they are modeled on dracula Right, which was basically Vlad the Impaler, either two or three, Uh, three as most of them will do. And, of course, he was known as Dracula because that was the title where A is son and Dracul is a dragon and he's son of a dragon. Well, if we understand the serpent imagery of the Seraphim who produced the Nephilim who looked just like them and they had faces of a viper and they drank blood, now you have this dragon and this drinking of blood and they're drinking the blood. By Nephilim and in the Vampire Tales to do two things: to advance their cognitive abilities and two to prolong their life or try and bring back the immortality that they lost. And so you have this version coming down of these vampires, of these serpent-like beings. And of course, in the Vampire Tale, is is that they are the direct enemy of Christianity, right? So you've got this sort of dualism that's going on, that's fighting for dominance, which is the whole occultic belief system in a nutshell.
1: Yeah and, and and the and the blood relates to like there's life in the blood so it seems like they're almost uh, drawing the energy from the life of the blood in order to sustain
2: they do and they also have that in in uh, the fairy um culture and in that series and movies that used to be on called Highlander it's called the quickening and it's the same concept where you're taking the life force out uh, and absorbing their life force to extend your immortality and your cognitive abilities. And you see that in the science fiction genre as well, where they're pulling that life force out as as well. But it's the same allegory.
1: I'm going to rabbit trail just for a second. <laughs> we can go into a different topic. I don't want to do that too much. Uh, I want to keep it related. But you mentioned about the serpents. And um, I know that in ancient cultures, a lot of—well, even modern cultures—a lot of cultures worship the serpent as the giver of life in Hinduism and Egyptian mythology and such, and that relates to the serpent mentality that you're talking about right now, doesn't it?
2: It does, and again, around the world, you have this representation of kings and gods as serpents, and so you have, like, gods in— um, the Kishamaya known as the plume serpent or the feathered serpent. And then you have these Xelda monsters uh, that, you know, have this sort of bird or uh, raven or dragon faced uh, bodies as well that are seemingly some sort of offspring of, of, uh, of these plume serpents. And you also have, you know, uh, the Anunnaki who have that same sort of look. And if you think about a Seraphim angel, which were one of the, you know, one of the, essentially one of the highest orders of angelic beings, and it has six wings as it comes down in Isaiah six, and they're known not only as messengers but created in fire and uh, serpent-like beings, just as in Numbers twenty-one when Moses puts that one uh, figurine on the top of the pole to protect from the cash, uh, the cache, the, uh, the serpents the venomous serpents. Um, Seraphim is used for that image of that serpent on on the snake. So we get this this understanding that they look like serpents, even from the Bible, just as Satan is described as a dragon and a serpent. And if you imagine feathers on the wings of these angelic beings, now you have this feathered uh, plumed serpent that's a god, which probably is a pretty addict adequate description of the seraphim angels as as they presented themselves and so yeah all of a sudden now you have with understanding the origins of uh, the serpent imagery and understanding that the demigods that they produced look just like them at least in the initial generations why you have all of the serpent and dragon imagery that is otherwise unaccountable on all continents around the world
1: yeah and that's related to the quasi-cultural right the uh
2: yeah, quasi or any of the uh, whether it's uh, Voltan or any of the other ones out of South America, they all are described the same way.
1: Now, does that relate to? And I'm gonna I'm gonna jump into David Icke world here for just for a second. Does that relate to the <laughs> reptilians?
2: Well, only if uh, they have an ability to have this changeling quality, right? To hide it, um, or is what he is, or is what he referring to? Um, because if you, if you accept that they, the descendants of the giants, uh, are around today and they've kept their genealogies to prove it. And they did have the qualities, some of the qualities passed on and the angelic beings would have had a changeling quality. All of that extension suggests on a very wild possibility that they might have a changeling capability. Um, so I'm not sure how we get to that, that, uh, sort of uh alien being that is is are these reptilians in that direction although unless one wonders whether or not the serpent the a cache out of eden uh, some of those were uh, kept and protected by fallen angels from being all turned into snakes but i'm not sure how they would have done that Um, but that would be another if i really reach on speculation how you account for that um, I, I obviously don't uh, go a lot for the, uh, the the reptilian sort of look on on that look today, right? So,
0: But I would also,
2: just on that reptilian aspect, though, is go back to people's understanding as it comes out of Sumeria of Enki, um, which was the god who provided wisdom uh, and is the brother to Anlil. I mean, he is described as the horned serpent, and his glyph is a horned serpent. So...
1: Yeah, what I was just thinking is that maybe the reptilian, if at all, we want to leap, uh, they would be probably maybe a, a Nephilim type of hybrid today or something. If at the very least, no, everybody claims that they somebody has seen a shapeshift, but nobody has any evidence. Even even Russia, yeah. even Russia, Putin claimed that Queen Elizabeth shapeshifted in front of her, <laughs> which is really strange.
2: Well, I won't 100% rule it out, but I, it, it, it's it's difficult to believe. Yeah, I just um, didn't
1: know if it was related, and I'm off my side trail now. So yeah. <laughs> we'll take it back off of—okay, off of David Icke, and we'll bring it back to Gary Wayne. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, you have a question?
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, as a Zell, you know, he taught men the art of war and the women the art of makeup. Yeah. And it seems uh, like n- nowadays, war is becoming so advanced, and the art of makeup seems to be kind of changing into something else that's actually becoming an- androgynous, and uh, was this carried over like in uh, Nimrod's day? Uh, was it rebirth at the Tower of, uh, of uh, Babel, or...? Because it seems to have come back up in the culture, and it seems to be very prominent now.
2: Well, I, I think I think it did. And if you look at, I think as the Egyptians as using the most makeup as we understand them coming out of uh, you know early post uh history, and we understand that Hermes took that with him with Ham and uh, Mizraim to to Egypt. I think it was started at. At Babel, because again, it's the same religion, right? And it makes sense that anything that they were doing in the antediluvian epoch, Nimrod as rebelling against God, um, which again, rebellion is going to be a significant part of the end time, but that's prophecy. Um, Anything that they did in the antediluvian epoch, they would have implemented. So yeah, I think this whole idea of of war, and certainly Nimrod, as he comes down uh, in in other accounts, was this great warrior not an, and a hunter, but a great warrior against people and giants, as other accounts would would tell us uh, and so he kind of reintroduces this whole notion of war and he develops this whole pantheon and and rituals, and I think makeup would be part of it and I think that all goes over to Egypt as to why you see that, and I think that is another very good parallel as to what we're starting to see today where war is going to is being wrapped up to a level of uh uh, you know that is almost unimaginable in what we're capable of doing and the things that we do to our bodies um not only makeup but other things that are forbidden like tattoos in the bible uh is becoming so popular that again it's hard to dismiss those coincidences now you mentioned that uh, Nimrod
3: worked with the forces. The Antichrist is going to worship the God of Forces. What do you know about the God of Forces himself?
2: Well, not much. Uh, I think it, it. I think it's the same as the God of uh, you know that comes up out of the abyss. And this is just deduction. And I don't have you know a, you know much on this to substantiate it. That. Uh, that is, you know, Abaddon and Apollyon are the destroyer. And uh, if that is Azazel, as I think it is, um, then, and, and again, uh, you can, uh, I like what, uh, what Jim had said earlier about Apollyon being not only, you know, the god of the sun, which is Apollo, uh, but also known as the destroyer. Uh, I think you have those allegories that that are all coming together. So Ezaziel is the one who taught, as you mentioned, the art of war. He is the destroyer. He's the one that's held accountable for destroying the whole world through not only the corruption of it, but through war and violence. So I think that's a direct parallel to making a connection there. But what I have to say is all of that is speculation on my part.
1: Well, I think we'll get ready to wrap it up for, in a second. I, that's an interesting connection to... Uh... Um, Azazel. I, I, did, I didn't realize that but um, one one more uh, Mystery Babylon we have that spirit of Babylon it seems to be Mystery Babylon to me seems to be the spiritual aspect of what the essence of Babylon Nimrod's Babylon was and it comes into throughout time and then mentioned in Revelation to sum up uh, the kingdom of well the, the rising of Antichrist and uh, uh, bringing us into the the End Age, which I believe is the New World Order. I believe that's the system, even though that's probably archaic at this point. It's still the mm-hmm. same characteristics. But do you have anything that links the Nimrods, Mystery Babylon, spiritually of what it might be referring to? I mean, you have any speculation on that?
2: No, I, I, I kind of stick kind of more to the basic aspect of it, that it is, you know, the, uh, uh, the ancient mystical language it's the mysteries are you know the mystical religions right and those mysteries are two things they are this road to godhood through enlightenment and initiation as you go through all of the all of this and it is the hidden knowledge and so i think when we dig deep into mystery babylon it's going to be absolutely inundated with that and the secret knowledge and whether or not that's going to be coming from aliens or the fallen angels or however that deception is going to come about it's designed to tell people that you can be gods in the physical world and i think that's what they're going to be promising is that you're going to evolve into gods in this physical world as opposed to the Uh, The spiritual world, Um, just as Nephilim were demigods and gods in this world. I think they're trying to bring that back, and they're going to have that as part of the promise. And I think they're also going to have that as part of the promise to swear allegiance and to fight and rebel uh, for their freedom and their road to godhood when they take the mark of the beast so i think all of that is sort of connected so not sure whether or not that's what you're driving at but when we talk about mystery i mean that's the mysteries to me right that's the the essence of their of their religion
1: yep that, that you know that we put people in a yeah you know, i put you on a spot when we ask oh what do you think about mystery you know everybody wants to know yep. everybody asks me who's the antichrist i said oh it's very simple and they're like what 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 i said the characteristics are in the scriptures, and you won't know until he does what he's supposed to do. <laughs> so yeah. it makes it simple on yeah. our part. But uh, yeah. Gary Wayne, and, uh, your book is The Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Tell everybody how to find you.
2: You can uh, find me on genesis6conspiracy.com. That's Genesis 6 with the number 6, and I've got a generous excerpt on all 98 chapters to give you, let you have a good feel for the book. I've got some interviews up there, and you can contact me through uh, the, uh, the the website as well, or you can contact me through Facebook under Gary Wayne. I also have two Genesis 6 conspiracies, and you can follow me also and contact me through Twitter at Gary GaryWayne63, at GaryWayne63. And if you do get a hold of me, I will respond to you if you've got a question or something that you want me to comment on.
1: Well, great. Thank you for joining, Bob and I. And uh, I'll probably have—I to. I did it last time. I'll put a link— on the show notes for people that want to con- contact you or, or you find you on in, in your website so that they have contact. And I really appreciate you coming here and spending time with us.
2: Well, thank you for having me. And hopefully we've uh, caused your audience to think a little bit more and maybe with that curiosity that we've raised that they're going to dig a little bit deeper because that's really what it's all about.
1: Yep. Yeah, well, all you actually did was, aim them towards me to ask me all these questions that I don't really have all the answers <laughs> to so you put me on the spot. <laughs> no, no, great to have you and I th- I really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, that's Gary Wayne and uh, you can find him at his website and I'll put the sh- I'll put that up in the show notes and uh, my website is jimdukeperspective.com that's where you can find all my information and you can get there also by jimduke.us. And we thank you for joining us. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, at Spreaker.com, or right from my website. And we'll see you next time.